to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markelis Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, also at Santa Clara University. And we are so thrilled to have two leaders here from Sistema Bio, a fabulous organization that I've had the pleasure of visiting twice actually, over the last decade. Um, let me introduce our two guests. Uh, first, we have Alex Eaton. Alex is the CEO and co-founder of Sistema Bio, a social business whose mission is to create value from waste. By providing a platform for technology development, training, and financing of sustainable infrastructure of small farmers, Sistema Bio is addressing climate change, food security, and poverty from offices all around the world. Sistema Bio specializes in the manufacture, distribution, and services of an innovative biogas system that converts human, animal, and agriculture waste into renewable energy and organic fertilizer. It's extremely cool. We also have Madrin Mina, uh, the East Africa Director at Sistema Bio with over 10 years experience working with rural communities across Africa. She is passionate about social entrepreneurship with a deep commitment to economic equity and women's economic empowerment through social entrepreneurship. She's been recognized as a 2023 top 40 under 40 women business leader and as an EEP rising energy leader in Africa awardee. Very impressive couple of folks that we have here. Uh, you want to kick off the, the questions? Sure. Why don't we, well, first of all, welcome. We're really excited to have you and be able to talk to you today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Uh, talk to us first maybe about just about what the company is and how it works and maybe a little bit about how it got started. Sure, maybe I'll, I'll start with the big picture and then let Madrin dig into to her work in, in East Africa. Um, Sistema Bio, at its core, what we're trying to do is is help farmers be more efficient, more productive, and more climate smart. And so what that means for us is adding infrastructure to farms that allow farmers to use less energy, less chemical fertilizers, save costs, and, and improve their yields. And in the process, what we also like to do is, is uh, improve human health, improve the environmental sustainability around the farms and, and for the families that are there, and, and also critically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And so our core intervention is something called a biogas digester. Uh, this is a technology that's been around for a really long time, and, and we upgraded it to a product that's deployable, scalable to a number of different farm sizes, and allows farmers to basically take all their organic waste that would, in absence of this technology, be creating a bunch of methane, capture that methane and use it as a renewable fuel. And as it processes that waste, gives us a really powerful organic fertilizer. And so that, that is a really key product intervention that requires a little bit of support. So we also provide the financing and training. Oh, nice. That's what I was going to ask you is, do they pay you? Do they, you know, how does the, how does the, how do the financials work for the farmers? Yeah, so we're a social business. So we sell the, the digesters straight to farmers. And what we do is try to make these payments accessible. So the upfront cost is really the biggest challenge here. Um, we're dealing uh, family farmers around the world 
feeding 70% of the world, managing the majority of arable land, and ironically are the group most likely to go hungry or face food security. Um, about one third of people on earth are still living on small farms uh, and they represent about the billion poorest people as well. So it's a group that has a huge opportunity but a lot of challenges. And so upfront payments are hard. What we do is provide payment plans. And then more recently, we've been able to leverage uh, sustainable development goal funding and also carbon markets to reduce the price of our equipment to farmers. Anyone talk a little bit about the, are you newly in Africa or talk a little bit about that? Uh, no, we are not new in Africa. We've been having operations in Africa for the last seven years, since uh, 2017. Um, Kenya is the headquarter for Africa operations but we've been expanding to more countries that is uh, to Uganda, Ethiopia, Malawi, and with plans to expand into more countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so interesting because this is a company that started in Mexico and then kind of moved from Mexico, exported from Mexico to other places. Um, I'd be curious to know, like, from your perspective, what have been, have there been any challenges translating the technology from the Mexican context to... African context? No, the adoption in <laughs> the adoption in the African context has been really great. Um, currently, we have over ten thousand units installed in, in on in various individual farms across the East Africa region, and the impact has been on over fifty thousand lives. Wow! Yeah, yeah. I'll just add. There was some challenges. Obviously, we started in Spanish, so the very basics ones were, were language and, and geography. But um, something that we say a lot, because we, we, it's part of our lived experience, is that farmers might look different, have different cuisine, uh, different cultures, different religions. But the, the problems that they face seem to be more similar than they are different. Mm -hmm. And so we really spent... I think it was eight or nine years working in Mexico before we went anywhere. And, and Mexico is this really pretty amazing laboratory for agriculture. We've got big farms in dry areas, small farms in tropical areas. You've got altitude, climate, socioeconomic differences. So we really tried out the technology in a lot of different places. And, and the leap uh, to Kenya was was a big one. And then we leaped again uh, to India quite quickly. And, and part of this was the vision was always global. And we wanted to prove that. Um, and the corollary to um, uh, a, a lot of investors sort of said, you know, go big in Mexico and then think about going to other places. But the reality is, is that um, as an agricultural company, we're exposed to all the challenges that a farmer is. And so we're right in the middle of a big drought in Mexico. We realized that being um, only in one market was uh, was a bit of a risk as well. Right. right. Interesting. Well, my understanding is that India's really taken off. Is that correct? Like really quickly? Yeah. I mean, India has some unique characteristics. Uh, it just uh, claimed the title as the most populous country on earth. Um, for a very long time, it's been the largest milk producer in the world. Uh, cattle and milk raising are deep cultural elements of day-to-day -day life in India. Um, India still has a couple of unique features like 
Um, close to 45% of the population still works in agriculture. That's a, that's a really high number for such a industrialized uh, country. And there were, we estimate something like 80 million farms. So um, we could address 1% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions by reaching about 50 million Indian farmers with our technology. And so there's nothing like it. I'll just also add um, India's Milk, a smallholder milk production went through a revolution in the 60s and 70s um, run by a man who's now sort of regarded almost as a, as a saint, and they called it the White Revolution. And he basically created a series of interconnected co-ops and a process for helping smallholder farmers share resources, learn together, and uh, basically converted almost the entire country into a series of, of milk co-ops. So now we can have one relationship with one single milk co-op that might have two or 300,000 farmers, wow. um, which is as many functional dairy farmers are as in are in some African countries and some Latin American countries, for example. So really, yeah, and any huge. individual state in India would be, you know, one of the largest global opportunities. And, you know, working across the whole country is just really right. eye opening. So we opened a new factory there, have a quite a large team. Um, the, it was intimidating, though, because biogas was probably started there. The first digesters in the world were probably in India. They've been doing a, an incredible job, installed millions over the years. I learned a lot about biogas from India. We didn't really think there was a lot of room for another biogas company, but it turned out that there hadn't been a brand there. There hadn't been a reliable prefabricated digester. There hadn't been a company that really approached it with this sort of culture and uh, empowerment of smallholder farmers rather than looking at smallholder farmers kind of as poor beneficiaries. So biogas actually had a kind of a bad reputation that we turned around and, and I think um, have really created quite an impact there and, and surprised a lot of people. How many units do you have in India now? We just crossed 50,000 right. and that is up from 500 maybe three years ago yeah yeah that's so interesting um let me uh back to you medrin I'm, I'm really interested in your passion around women's economic empowerment and how you know how you see sistema bio playing a role in women's economic empowerment mm -hmm. and as a woman leader what does that mean to you um i'm passionate about economic empowerment of women and being in Sistema Bio is complementary and work goes hand in hand with that. Over 70% of our end users are women because they are the ones who cook for their families on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in, a, in our context in Africa. And as Alex mentioned, the problems we are solving, there's clean cooking, there's indoor air pollution. They also are from the largest group of smallholder farmers. Women do most of the work. So the benefits that we translate to the end users directly impacts their economic empowerment. It's amazing. Do you have any sense of like, have you measured that at all? So some of our the entrepreneurs in our network will say, oh, we've tripled the incomes of, you know, these artisans or these smallholder farmers or whatever. Do you have any of that kind of data? Um, yes, it's been measured in terms of the increased productivity from their farming activities. We've witnessed about 30% improvement in the output from the crop yields that they harvest and they sell. So their revenues have in, in, increased. 
there's also the savings that they make by transitioning from using traditional wood fuel, firewood, charcoal, and that translates to the savings they make by transitioning to cooking with biogas. Right. And of course, there's all the health and benefits. And also there's the health right? benefit from uh, prevention of indoor air pollution. I'm sorry, I'm just going to give a quick plug here. Um, we just published two papers this year, uh, one with the World Bank and one with the IFC, um, based on kind of a first-of-its-kind uh, health trial that we did uh, funded by the World Bank because um, it was pretty complicated. And so we basically had air quality monitors on a group of women and a control group of women in Kenya, and it happened to happen during COVID. And so there was three really incredible outcomes from that. First is uh, it was the first time that uh, there was quantifiable health data for a clean cooking intervention. So we basically were able to break down the health impacts at a community level, um, something called avoided disability adjusted life years. It's a public health measure. And it's the first time that the, the gold standard will certify impacts around health. Um, and so that was a big deal. We also uh, worked on SDG five. Surprisingly, there's so much talk about empowering women, but there's not a lot of hard data to suggest exactly how that should be done. And so we focused on a measure of time availability. And so we were able to demonstrate in, in Kenya an average of about 49 minutes per day per household of free time for women that could be used for productive uh, or leisure activities. Um, so that's a pretty that's a you know a full work day a week across the, you know, that's 52 extra days that you have available to you in the course of a year. So that's pretty significant. And then the third one um, was around resilience. Right as COVID happened, there was a bunch of supply chain issues. And we saw that all the other clean interventions, mostly a lot of electricity and and LP gas users had to go back to cooking firewood. So they fell back down the energy ladder, whereas um, the use of biogas actually increased because so many people were home, they were cooking their lunches there. And so those three data points really gave us a, a very concrete footing. And, and that's all featured in, in these two reports that came out this year. I'm curious, when you approach a farmer for the first time, is there skepticism about it? And um, how do you overcome that? How do you communicate this in a way so that they see the benefit? Um, the biggest challenge when we approach a farmer the first time, it's the lack of knowledge or awareness. Um, so you have to start from zero, educating them about biogas, but it's not just a sale, that's not the purpose. It's understanding their way of life up to that moment, the challenges they've been facing, whether it's on the agriculture front or it's on the clean cooking front, getting to know what's their current source of cooking energy, if it's firewood or charcoal or any other form of biomass, what do they spend on that? Do they experience indoor air pollution? You get you factor all that into it, then now you get to educate them about the benefits of having a biodigester, cooking with biogas, becoming self-reliant, using the waste you have on your farm to generate your own biogas that you use for the cooking, and also the benefits you can get from using an organic biofertilizer for farming. Um, all this could be a bit theoretical to someone who's never seen a biodigester, but we work in rural communities where there is a neighbor somewhere who might own a biodigester. So we have a lot of demonstration facilities, either through our farmer network or in our offices that we have in the rural communities as well. So it, 
depending on the length that the farmer wants to go to see that this technology actually works and the benefit it could bring to their lives, we are able to work through our farmer networks or through our demonstration centers in the various offices we have. We also really attend and do demonstrations in as many farmer forums as possible so that they can see the technology actually working. It's so interesting. I mean, because it's really, I, I, I mean, I remember the first time that I heard about um, PAYGO models for solar home systems, which is a different thing. But the idea was behind that was once people understood that, you know, every day they go out and they buy whatever, 20 cents or 50 cents worth of kerosene, right? And the business model was meant to replicate that. So now I'm going to spend 20 or 50 cents a day on, you know, buying time on my solar home system that's going to give me. So I'm just wondering, like, what are the kind of payment methods that you've used that help to kind of, you know, ease people in to paying for your biodigester in a way that kind of may replicate or mimic their current behavior? Or, or is that even part of the model in your case? Yes, it is part of the model. I mentioned sitting down with the farmer, understanding their current pain points and their current expenditure and expenses on various activities on, in, the, in the farm. Our payment models are structured in a way that what you've been spending on charcoal, on LPG, on wood fuel, or any other source of energy is what you will spend on the monthly payments that you're making to finally pay off your biodigester. And after your payment period is over, you own the system yeah. and it's free for use. Yeah, that's super powerful, I think, you know. Maybe I'll just add there the, the thing that Madrid mentioned earlier, which is, you know, you can use a lot of logic in these conversations, right? So people will, you know, will lay out the ROI and will lay out the payback. But what we've really come to understand is that there's two factors that we just will never be able to understand viscerally, right? So one is just risk. The idea of something new being risk. And it's not that these are conservative people. It's just their level of risk tolerance. Risk, being able to take a risk is really a privilege, right? So you, right. in the back of your mind, you know that if I fail, then, you know, I've got a plan B. But in, when it comes to fertilizers and when it comes to feeding your family, there's really not a lot of margin of error there. And so if they're making a commitment to an expenditure, they, they really just need to know, not think or hope or have been promised. They need to know that they're going to save that money, right? And, and, the, and that comes down to the fertilizer piece. And then the other bit is just this idea of ROI. Farmers and, and generally people with limited economic resources don't, aren't able to make good investments. Even if you give them an investment that returns incredible yields, if that's not a two-week or four-week yield, they just really don't have the cash flow to make those sorts of decisions. So we speak a lot about ROIs and you know our investment, you could put it in the sort of no-brainer category, especially once you know that it works. But um, it's still, we, we still sort of require this uh, emotional motivation and we still really depend on the leaders in the community to make people feel at ease and show them that this is working just because that risk and investment profile is, is so hard to overcome. Absolutely. Well, it's brain science, isn't it? You know, the part of the brain that actually 
makes decisions, it, you know, these kinds of decisions is not the part of the brain that processes data, facts, and evidence. So it's more like, so if people are going to make this decision, they're going to make it based on like some kind of, you know, gut feeling like I know this is going to work for me. I know it's going to work for me and my family. And, that, and that's where we really lean on the emotion, the true pure emotion that we sometimes comes out when, um, you know, particularly women have been using this technology for a while and, you know, they haven't, they, they, they sort of turn around, they realize like, wow, I haven't refilled my LP gas tank in six months, eight months, 12 months. Like, wow, like I, you know, they'll have these little anecdotes, like someone will knock on the door, the guy that used to sell them firewood and will be like, what is going on? Are you okay? Did the family die? Did you, like, how have you not bought firewood? And then, you know, that when they tell these anecdotes of explaining to the firewood guy about what they're got and, and the look on his face, and you can really sort of see this sort of sense of things moving forward. And those are the kind of the emotional stories that, that really help us help us sell. Yeah. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you integrate sustainable values into, into the operations of the company? And uh, what role does value-based investing play in your mission? Sure. Um, you know, we operate under six core values, and, and I maybe won't go through all of them, but the two that might be the most relevant here, and, and we just recently worked as a leadership team to kind of retool these and, and reestablish them. I, I think there's two that are, are maybe, maybe three that I'll, I'll highlight here. The first one and what we put first is that we're environmental activists, um, and that's the whole of the value. That's how it's written. It wasn't sort of like, you know, we do our best to integrate. Like, no, we just decided, like, we want to be very clear and upfront with our investors, with our employees. We're environmental activists. And activists don't always make the most logical decisions when it comes to the things they care about, which is by definition what makes them an activist and not just a strong supporter or something. And so we, we decided just to put that at the core heart of, of what we did. And, you know, which is important because, you know, we didn't say we were a civil rights activist or, a, you know, these are all things we care about. But if you try to do everything, then you're doing sort of nothing. So we started with environmental activism. The second value is um, we work hard because farmers work hard. Um, and and that for us uh, is, is probably the one that we lean on and think about and really reflect on in our work the most. Um, we want to make sure that at every role, and some of our roles are in the field and working with farmers, but some of them are also like accountants and, you know, people doing the back end work. We want to make it clear that, you know, getting up early and thinking about and empathizing with the farmers and working hard and delivering results is, is something that um, is, is super important. And it like creates that connection with the field every day. And so it's actually, we'll use that phrase in conversations kind of a lot. Um, and then the third one is um, we expect high performance because we're solving the world's most important problems. We, we use that um, value quite a lot because when you're working in activism or working in something you're really passionate about, you might get a really passionate participant but if they're not performing really well, it puts us in kind of a weird situation. We're not, we're a business, you know, we're not a family, we're, we're a team uh, and we're trying to solve important problems. And so, and so sometimes it's hard to be like, oh, well, we can't let Joey go because, you know, he cares so much about this stuff. But, you know, it, it really gave us a frame of reference to say, you know, we really need to recruit and be focused on, on high performance here because our mission is worth it. I don't know if there's another one that you wanted to hire. 
Uh, no, the one that actually resonates most with me is we work hard because farmers work hard. Farmers don't have days off. You wake up every day very early in the morning and you're the last person to go to bed. There's no, they will not take a vacation because that cow has to be fed, the milking has to be done, they have to be treated. Every day you worry about the climate change, about the, the drought, drought cycles. So our work is to get integrated into these farmer systems. And since we are solving humanity's most challenging problems, every day you wake up and you remember that farmer whose life you're nice. impacting. And every single decision you make is going to have an impact on their lives, whether it's positive or negative. So it's up to all of us to make sure the impact we have is positive on their lives. Like we are improving their livelihoods. If there's extra income they could make, we, we purpose ourselves to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love that. You guys don't take vacations? <laughs> is that what I'm hearing? I feel like I should just add yeah. in the HR, uh, the HR thing. I kind of feel guilty for my, you know. No, our, yeah, we. Um, stinted our, Burning Man earlier this year. Yeah, no, the, the uh, HR policies and, and, and farmers' work schedules are, are not perfectly aligned. Because um, we do really do focus on, and but that does actually influence a little bit how we uh, think about our employees too. So we do have a lot of employees that are farmers themselves. And in fact, in every interview, it doesn't matter if it's for my CFO, I really want someone to explain to me their connection to farming or farmers and in their family. And if, if someone can't do it at all, they can't even come up with an answer for that, like, oh, I don't, then, you know, they're probably not a good fit for the role. Um, but uh, that means that we have to be quite flexible around harvest times. Um, we have to really help people think about, um, you know, we like it that people are part of the time working in the field or working their own farms because it's important. So we're pretty flexible. And, and more recently, we've been doing work, um, making sure that there's a uh, better time off and, you know, that, that people take weekends and stuff, but where it really came to impact was this, um, you know, we have, I think we figured out like 25 nationalities. Uh, I think we have 50 languages represented in the company. It's really, uh, a really massive spread. Um, but ironically it's the city rural urban divide that is our biggest cultural gap um and it's because it's very easy for someone in the city to show up at the office at 10 and you know and in someone from the field they might have woken up at five six in the morning they're driving a long distance and then they need something from it because maybe they're trying to collect some data and so if someone's like oh i'll get to that in a second versus like you know, understanding and empathizing with what it's like to be out there. So, I mean, we just want to make sure people are always aware that our, our work has impact. But um, as we've matured, we have had to You do let people vacations. take some time off on the weekends. Yeah, I can see how that can be really uh, interesting. Um, so um, one thing, I'd, li I'd like to run something by you, uh, mm -hmm. Madrin, because we've actually changed our language around women's empowerment and women's economic empowerment. We now talk about women's economic power. Mm -hmm. um, and the the idea, I, I will not take credit for the idea, the idea was given to me by um, uh, actually Tamara Cook, who lives in Kenya. She works for FSD Kenya. Shout out to Tamara. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and she said, yeah, we've decided to um, 
not use the word empowerment. And then I noticed that Melinda French Gates in a recent article also was talking about women's power, women's economic power. Mm-hmm. For the, I think the idea is that it's not empowerment kind of sounds like I'm giving you power. You know, it kind of has, a, it could have uh, a connotation of, you know, an, an unequal power uh, to begin with, and I've got it and I'm going to give it to you, or a little bit, um, I don't know, paternalistic or something like that. Anyway, yeah. we've made that decision, and I'm, I'd love to get your um, response or your reaction to that. I do agree. Women's power is better than women empowerment. I believe in the, women have soft power. They actually run households. A lot of the decisions you see being made is because a woman has knows the right direction that the household should take. For example, the biodigesters that we sell in Kenya, studies have shown it's mostly the men who pay for them, but the end user is the woman. Over 50% of our sales force is women. Because they understand the pain points and how households are managed and run. If they are able to approach the women in these households, the decision to buy a biodigester is easier to make. It's actually women's power, not women empowerment. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Sistema Bio might be... uh adopting this language too who knows i i love it i th- i feel like it's it is a stronger statement about about women don if a a small farmer in the us hears the podcast and is interested in what you do mm-hmm. are there options open to them because there're you know sustenance farmer in the united states there are, there are, and and we have digesters here. Um, I just have been last couple of days visiting some units here in California, um, and we've been working with some farmers in Vermont and working with some um, Mennonite and Amish farmers uh, wow. in the Chesapeake Bay region. And we haven't installed any there yet, but we're excited by the parallels. And I think this just comes back to what I was saying before: is that a, a small family farmer. Um, it isn't actually about size. It's about a way of viewing the world, right? And so when you're a farmer, you are inherently protecting a piece of the earth, right? Like you're very much grounded in a time and place and you have a role in your community. Now, an industrial agricultural operation is inherently run and owned by people that don't live in the same place. So there's just going to in the same way that that same thing happens happened to Main Street and, and corporate interests and other things, in agriculture, the implication is that the local community is sort of a stakeholder, but they're not your friends and neighbors and family members. And it's not your kids that are drinking the water and eating the food and maybe being exposed to whatever you're applying to the, to the crops or to the earth. And so we actually have no limitation to working uh, with with U.S. farmers, and and we think that the one of the most depressing stories in agriculture is the story of the U.S. farmer that went from 
uh, you know, millions and millions of farms uh, and have, we've lost 98% of our farmers. And the amount of the U.S. population that um, identifies as a farmer is just too low. There's just not enough resilience and they're not responding necessarily to the needs uh, of their communities. And there's not enough of the concentric circles that I see, which are sort of, you know, you're growing for your family, then you're growing for your community, then you're growing for your region, and then you're growing for export. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful model, but, you know, a lot, most of the farmers in the U.S. are growing for international commodities markets or, or, or for big government subsidies and things like that. And so, but you mentioned there are, there is now this beautiful resurgence in the farmer's market and all these things have come back up. I grew up on a small farm and that was not common at the time. And my mom had a, uh, a little vegetable stand and that was not common at the time. Um, you know, I think she was like 50 years too late or 50 years too early. Um, <laughs> and, and that's my hope is that there is a resurgence of, of smaller um, farmers and that we can play a role there. So, um, I'd, I'd like to, I have a question for both of you um, to answer about where do you see Sistema Bio going in like five years time, for instance? What is, what is your vision? What, I'm going to let you answer first. You go first. Yeah. <laughs> I think I you should go first. Madrin. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm happy to start. We, um, our, our core model of what we're doing today is proven at now, I would consider a little bit of scale. We're really happy to have received the uh, Impact Excellence Award. But the, the truth is, is that, um, you know, we've grown a thousand X and but we still really need to grow another thousand X. Right. So the the problem we're trying to solve and I'm kind of haunted by an investor that, you know, five or six years ago was like, all right, well, you've reached a few thousand farmers and then a few thousand more and then maybe a million, so what? And I've just had that in my brain, like, mean. oh, it was sort of mean, but also kind of real talk, right? And so we started just doing the math and we realized that um, within a reasonable time frame, we could reduce 1% of humanity's greenhouse gases. And that is essentially working with about 25 million farmers so they would uh, sequester or reduce methane emissions and then be able to absorb uh, carbon back into the soil. And so um, that's really, I'm fixated on that number. I know how much it costs. I know where we can go. Um, but in the meantime, uh, that, 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 that's lots, that's tens of millions of farmers using our technology. In the meantime, now that we have hundreds of thousands of farmers using our technology and we have a, a obligation and this opportunity to work with them over the long period of time that these carbon projects take, we're starting to look at what else can we do with these farmers. Now we have a lot of loyalty, we've created an impact. Uh, you create a, quite a relationship when you create a change at someone's household yeah, and yeah. That, that relationship is tight. And so we're starting to look at um, the other big challenges to uh, climate resilience, mm -hmm. um, which is principally water. Yeah. There's either too much of it or not enough. Um, it has to do with, with the type of agriculture. So it's transitioning from um, annuals into perennials, food crops that include trees and bushes and more agroforestry and syntropic systems, um, you know, better holistic management and holistic systems. So we think we can be a change agent there, thinking about protected agriculture, adding greenhouses or or shade houses in a lot of cases. Um, and all of that is 
zoomed out far enough is a piece of infrastructure that requires training and financing. And that's mm -hmm. what we do really well. Yeah. Although just to be a little controversial on that. So um, I think it sounds awesome. I'm very excited by this whole conversation. But I mean, theoretically, if you want to reach 25 million farmers to reduce, you know, 1% of the greenhouse gases, you could do all of that in India. We could do all that in India, but the, like why, why do you still need to work in Mexico or uh, East Africa? You know, it's a little bit of a social justice issue. I think um, I think the the issue that I get concerned about is um, carbon tunnel vision. I think carbon is absolutely the right goal to calibrate our direction of travel. But we can't, for example, um, for example, and, and not to speak negatively about anything, but, you know, DAC is a really good example. Like in theory, you could do a bunch of direct air capture and actually be spending a ton of energy having machines just putting carbon underground. But the beauty of the carbon markets and and the, the relationship between agriculture and carbon emissions is that you can really achieve all of these sustainable development goals in, in the process. And so we really think our work ultimately will be a uh, a change of the mind. People are turning shit into gold all of a sudden. That really opens <laughs> up a lot of possibilities mentally. That's You've right. sort of opened your window of what is possible. And I think it's our sort of pleasure, but also obligation to make sure that that's happening in a lot of different places and so that, that people can learn. And so just doing it in one place, I don't think yeah, is, so it's is enough. It's not just about the numbers. It's really yeah. about the overall. Absolutely. And so then what is the, what is the vision for Africa five years from now? What do you think? My Naswal domination. In, <laughs> um, smallholder farmers have always had the power. But over the years, the things have been working against them. As I mentioned, drought cycles, unpredictability. And I'd give maybe a small context uh, in Kenya. Farmers no longer know when to plant. They no longer know. We knew when there were the long rain and the short rain seasons. There's nothing clear right now, and even when it rains, it floods. So it's not something sustainable. My vision for the in the next five years is that farmers will have the power back in their hands. They will be self-reliant. They will not go through cycles of fake fertilizer. You not only the rain cycles, for example, on, on climate, but even the supply chain. Whatever they are getting, they are not sure if it's of the right quality. If they have the, once they get, not if, but when, once they get the power back, it's when I will know the work that we are doing, the impact that we are creating. I'll see now the future is bright. Yeah. The direction that we are take, we've taken, I can see the impact on a larger scale. What we've achieved now is pretty good. But there's so much work to be done. That I think. Do you have any other questions? Or I think I think this is it. I think this is great. All right. So, um, Alex Madren, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. Um, this is Bridget Helms. I'm executive director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship here at Santa Clara University, and this is Line of Sight. And I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics. Thank you for being with us and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.